It's a blessing to open the Word of God together, and I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and we'll begin our reading at verse 29. Uh, Last night we sent out um, a printout, a one-page printout that you can uh, use as part of your family devotion time as we go through this scripture, and uh, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to uh, uh, print that out. Luke chapter 19, we'll begin our reading at verse 29. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage, this is talking about Jesus, and Bethany at the mount, called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you lose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners therefore say unto him, why loose ye the colt? And they said, the Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. I'd like to conclude here at verse 44. This is the final week of the ministry of Jesus here on this earth, and all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this event in varying details. And this is the week leading up to the Passover, and so many people are coming from around the world for this annual event as they make their way to uh, Jerusalem. Now, we don't have any record in the scripture prior to this that Jesus ever rode on an animal. And in a sense, it's probably not surprising. We read throughout the scriptures that he was uh, on foot as he walked from town to town, uh, being accessible to those that were around him. Because as he went, he was always thronged. People um, around him, wanting to converse with him and touch him and and be with him. And the best way to do that was to be on their level. But here we have kind of a departure as as the scripture, as the writer here, Luke spends a number of verses to highlight how Jesus went out of his way to ride on a colt, that is, a baby donkey. 
And it's kind of an unusual circumstance as he goes about getting the colt. And we don't see so much the significance in, in, in Luke as to why he was doing that. But the Apostle John in his gospel writes that Jesus did this to fulfill a prophecy that we read in the prophet Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey, and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is fulfilling a scripture that hundreds of years prior that the prophet Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned that this was one of the many signs that Jesus was, uh, Jesus is and was the Messiah. <clears throat> now, if you think of the significance of a colt compared with a horse or a stallion, normally a king would not ride a donkey, especially not a young donkey, a colt. They would ride a stallion, a majestic horse, as they would ride into the city, especially if they just conquered it or, or in some important event, because a horse is majestic and powerful. And if you've ever been in a circumstance where... Um, there was an RCMP officer or some uh, law enforcement riding on a horse, as I made an experience some years ago. There's a whole different experience of meeting a law enforcement officer, someone who carries the authority when they're on foot rather than when they're on a horse. And you have a whole different level of respect when you realize the power and the majesty a great stallion has. But this was not the picture that Jesus was portraying here because riding in on a colt as a baby donkey is small and weak and is not impressive in that sense, is not authoritarian, but instead is much closer to the level of the people around them, is much more approachable. And in a sense, as the prophet Zechariah said, is a bearer of peace rather than of might and authority. Even though God certainly has might and authority, and throughout the scripture he exercises that in his sovereignty as he decrees, but he is also a king of peace. And Jesus being the express image of the Father, as the scripture says, is portraying this king of peace. The Gospel of John also records that as Jesus began, and, and as we read here in verse 36, as he went, they spread their clothes in the way, and then the Apostle John fills in some additional details about what was happening as he started down the Mount of Olives as he was making his way toward Jerusalem. It says that they had palm branches that they were waving as they were praising him. Now, if you look and you do a search, which I did uh, in the scripture, just of palm branches. What is the significance of palm branches? You read multiple scriptures throughout the, New, the Old Testament, in particular, where they used palm branches as a means to worship 
or to express majesty and beauty. And I think the, the most interesting reference what you can find is in Ezekiel chapter 40, where several chapters there are dedicated to the description of the new temple and how the doors and the walls and the pillars and all kinds of things have the majesty, the, the image of the palm branches and the palm trees encarved on them because of their beauty and majesty. And so the this is the same symbol actually if you read in in Revelation the 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 seventh chapter where we we see the uh redeemed those who are redeemed and this is a future vision in Revelations chapter 7 verse 9 it says after this, this is the apostle John writing he's seeing a vision here he says after this I beheld in low a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands doing the same thing in a sense of carrying out what these disciples and the people are as they worshiped and proclaimed the majesty of Jesus the Messiah. But it was more than just this spiritual symbol, as we talked about, but it was also a nationalistic symbol, especially at that time. And we don't have time to go into the details of why it was a nationalistic symbol, but the combination of those two things, it was clear that they were calling Jesus their king. Not just their spiritual king, but also they wanted him to make him their physical king. Finally, a person from the throne of David to take over his rightful place on the throne. And so very exciting time. And to add to that excitement, the Apostle John records that the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was now being passed from person to person. And that momentum and that excitement and that exuberance was growing in number. And so, so much so that the Pharisees in verse 39 were very unhappy about this excitement and exuberance, where they tried to tell Jesus to calm that exuberance. But then we see something strange happening in verse 41, it says, When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. There are only two times that we read in the scripture that Jesus wept. One was just a short time prior to this, at the time when Lazarus died, when Jesus saw the groaning and the pain that that, the impact that it had on the people around them, especially the family of Mary and Martha. But here is the only second, this is the second time we read that Jesus wept. And imagine how strange that would have seemed. Here at the height of his popularity, when everyone is rejoicing around him, he stops and he begins to weep. And this is not a weeping of joy, this is a weeping of sorrow. Perhaps the closest thing I can think of as an analogy is that at the day, on the day of the wedding, someone getting married, the bride or the groom, suddenly breaks down in sorrow and starts to weep. This is supposed to be a time of rejoicing, a time of celebration. And so something like this would be unusual, would be strange. But he gives the reason for why he began to weep. 
He says in verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the thing which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thy eyes. And in a sense, in, in verse uh, 44, he summarizes, summarizes all of the statements. He says, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. See, this is the first reason why he began to weep. Because they didn't know the time of their visitation. What does that mean? The scripture says, in the fullness of time, God came in the form of Jesus, in the incarnation, and became fully God and fully man. Came to visit his creation, to come down on our level because we could not go to his level. And so he set all of his glory and majesty aside for a time and took on the form of a man and came to visit us, to visit them in that time. Now, of course, many were aware of his claim to be the Son of God, the express image of the Father, and of course that caused great stress among the Pharisees and controversy. But many, especially the masses, enjoyed and could see that there was something different about Jesus. The way he interacted with the people, how approachable he was, the words that he spoke, the wisdom that he shared, the parables, the lessons. They, the, uh, some even expressed it as, none has ever spoke like this man. Those who heard him for the first time were mesmerized by the things that he said. Even to the point when the Pharisees sent soldiers to arrest him. And they went for that purpose where they were, in a sense, flabbergasted. Or they were uh, um, so impressed with what they were saying, they came back to the Pharisees empty-handed saying, no man ever spoke like him. And the miracles that he performed, especially the latest one here of raising Lazarus from the dead. So how could they have missed the time of visitation? We get a glimpse of that in the previous verse when Jesus says, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy Peace. That was the express purpose that Jesus came, is to bring peace between God and man, and peace between, among his creation, between men and women, and societies, in all forms of that. And yet he says they miss that. How did they miss that? Because they didn't miss it entirely in the sense that they saw who he was. They saw all the things that we, that, that we talked about earlier. But they missed the bigger picture. And that was because they had their eyes on their immediate circumstances. 
God's higher purposes simply didn't make sense or perhaps even matter. Because Jesus did not come just so he could continue to heal and make, in that sense, temporal differences. His vision was far bigger than just the things that they had experienced in the here and now. And that is what they missed. His greater purpose was to transcend that specific time, even though they had great hopes of finally the time would come when um, they could have self-determination, no longer being under the occupation of Rome and the slavery and the other uh, vices that uh, they that were thrust upon them, were forced into their lives. They wanted immediate deliverance from that, and so that's what they were looking for. But God's purpose was far greater because it transcended that time and place, because it was to set in motion the things that we now more fully see from our perspective today. As Brother Ben preached last week, in a sense that that we are a privileged people because we see from a vantage point that they could not see or did not see were, were, were perhaps not un, or were unwilling to see, even though Jesus spoke and taught and reinforced that so many times. But I believe we miss God's movement in a similar way. We fail to see God's purposes above our own needs and expectations. In a sense, it's a short-term thinking rather than visionary thinking. When I was a teenager, <clears throat> I was very excited to get my license. Counting down the days when I was 15 years old till my birthday that I could go in and get my license. And I had to take some driving instructions. And the one thing that still stands out to me today, decades later, was the instruction that I received that when I am driving, I should not be looking at the road right in front of me. I need to be looking farther ahead because I will naturally steer where I'm looking. And so if I need to do some evasive driving in the wintertime, for example, as I'm sliding over the road, rather than looking in the ditch, I need to be looking on the road to see where I'm going because my body and brain will naturally turn the wheel in the way to help me get in the way that I need to go. And I noticed a difference in my driving when I did that because I was, too, I was looking too <clears throat> far in front or too close in front of the car. And so my driving was not straight. It sort of veered a little bit side to side as I constantly made corrections. And when I took to heart that instruction, and started looking farther ahead, it suddenly became a much smoother ride. And that's the difference between sort of uh, short-term thinking and visionary thinking. <clears throat> and this is one of the things that Jesus was trying to instill in his teaching. And, 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 and as he was uh, spending the time, those years, with his disciples, is to try to get them to see beyond just what was in front of their nose. To see that God had a bigger picture in mind. Had a greater vision that he was bringing to pass. And yes, there were implications. Yes, there were um, things that were happening in the short term. 
but they needed to be interpreted in view of the long term. And this is the difficulty that we have in our life. It's easy to say that to somebody who's learning how to drive, to, to switch their focus like that, because you can see, are they doing it or not? You can see what, where their eyes are focused. But doing that in life is more difficult. Because we're more prone to focus on the current circumstance, the thing that's right in front of us, because that's the easiest thing to do. And so if we judge God's purposes by the things that are happening in our current circumstance right now, we fall into the same rut, the same trap that these people fell in to and then, and, and literally missed their time of visitation. Now, what does this look like when we're in a hardship, when things aren't going the way we expect them to do? Generally, our prayers and our thoughts are going to be around, Lord, deliver me, fight for me, remove this burden, help me out of this circumstance, change this person's mind or that person's mind, or open the door for this or for that. And those aren't all wrong. It's good to have a desire to look for ways to be delivered out of a difficulty or hardship. But if that's where we stop, we can then miss the movement, God's movement of what he is trying to accomplish in our lives and in that circumstance. Instead of just ending our prayer there, instead we should be Praying, Lord, mold me, shape me, change me, grow me, glorify yourself through my life in this circumstance. Help me to be faithful. Help me see the bigger picture. And when I don't see it right now, help me to trust that you have a bigger picture. And help me take one step at a time in the right direction. And when we ask him, To do that, he's promised to be faithful and that he will not leave us alone or forsake us. But if we humble ourselves, will lead us in the way of truth. The thing that we need to fight against is the immediate focus on our present relief more so than God's greater purpose. And let me repeat that. Our focus too often is for our present relief than for God's greater purpose. We don't know what specific hardship is in store for us during this pandemic that we're experiencing, unprecedented. Right now, for most probably, life is generally normal, although... We now have a lot more time at home, spending time with our families, those of you that have families. And so instead of spending an inordinate amount of time focusing on the things that are right in front of us, the news channels that are going 24-7, bringing us all kinds of stats and details, I mean, we don't want to live in ignorance either, But there are far more important things that we can focus on. As we now no longer have the pressure 
of our schedules to run to and fro. Now is a time to develop relationships one with another, to be able to eat together in an unhurried manner, to be able to share together in a time of worship, to read the scripture together, to do a read aloud together, to just spend time doing things together that we didn't really have time to do before as a way to foster our relationships one with another. And of course, we have the blessing of being able to do that virtually through the telephone or through the various means that you have available to stay connected to others, to demonstrate care and concern and to foster additional relationships because we don't have the blessing of the the time of fellowship that we so enjoy when we're together in person. And so that takes an extra effort to be able to stay connected during this time of isolation. Now we will have more time to read the scriptures and to foster those things that in the past were more difficult because of our pressing schedules. And that will allow us to more easily recognize God's movement in our lives. And so that we don't fall into the same trap that they fell into where they missed They knew not, they were not able to discern the time of their visitation. That was the first reason Jesus was weeping, because they didn't know their time of visitation. But the second reason he was weeping is he saw the future that was a result of their insistence on going their own way. In his mind's eye, he could see that in less than 40 years, the Roman general Titus would march with his armies, surround the city of Jerusalem, the the city that he was viewing now from the Mount of Olives, and would besiege it and destroy it. I was privileged to be there just six weeks ago, just before the COVID-19 lockdown. I had to go there on business and was privileged to spend a day just touring around in this very same place that the Bible talks about here, standing on the Mount of Olives because it's an olive groves, multiple olive groves there, and being able to view from the side, that side, view across the Kidron Valley, the beautiful city of Jerusalem, and walk that path down in a similar way that Jesus and his disciples did here, walk that down and come back up and enter the city and experience the crowds and the, the, just the, the, the energy that was there. And of course, the time that I was there, even though there were tens of thousands of people for sure, as I did that walk, and just so you get an understanding, the distance here, it's like the distance between perhaps here, our church uh, here on Strasburg Road, and if you were to walk to Homer Watson, so maybe a kilometer, something on that order. But it's a downward journey till you reach the bottom, and then you come back up, and you can enter the city in that way. And it's beautiful to see the walls and the gates and the things that were there. And of course, during Jesus' time, it was far more beautiful than what, than what I was able to envision there. And the majesty and the glory of the temple there. And still to this day, you can see 
This evidence of the destruction that he was prophesying here, where those soldiers had thrown down those great rocks from the temple, still present there 2,000, 2000 years later, sitting in a heap of rubble, smashing down from, from probably 40 feet above, smashing into the roadway below and, 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 and cracking it and leaving big craters. That if you're privileged to go visit, I encourage, of course, you to do that, that you will still see to this day. And so in his mind's eye, he's seeing that taking place. But not so much that, uh, that the destruction of the physical building, though that was a, a terrible tragedy, considering it took them so many decades to put it together, and the marvel of engineering that it took to put it together, that Herod used as the means of construction, that even to this day, we don't fully understand how he could accomplish that. But more so, he says here, that where it says in verse 43, verse 44, And it shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. The entire city would be destroyed. Countless lives would be lost because of their insistence on going their own Way. Jesus here was weeping because there was going to be the consequence of them continuing in that same direction. <clears throat> what would Jesus see if he looked at my life and at your life? Would he also see that we're heading in a direction that would cause him to weep as well? Many years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to the Grand Canyon, and many of you have had that privilege as well. And it is a sight to behold. But one of the things that <clears throat> surprised me, and in the years since, as I've, I've uh, read accounts here that the number of people that have died at the Grand Canyon is not so much that that the number itself is so great, but it's how the majority of them had died. And just several years ago, just as an example, and this happens over and over again, there was a young lady at the age of 18 years old, as she was touring the top, wanted to take a picture, a selfie, beside a sign that says, stay back from the edge. And she felt she was exempt from that sign and wanted to stand beside it, take a, take a picture. And to the horror of the onlookers, the side crumbled and she fell 1,500 feet to her death. A tragedy that could have been prevented. And the thing that was so shocking to me is that how commonplace that is. That is the number one cause of death at the Grand Canyon. And not just at the Grand Canyon, at many places where people can travel. That they see the danger signs. The signs that tell them to stay back. Or to provide guidance. To provide them a way to safety. And they believe they are exempt or above those things. Those signs. That message. And to their detriment, they pay a high price. And life is kind of like that, where, as 
Human beings, we want excitement, we want thrills, and this is especially true when, when we're when in our teens and in our 20s, when we sort of feel invincible, we haven't really experienced the consequences of sometimes some poor decision-making. But as we get older, we start realizing and recognizing the people that didn't take those signs that the Scripture says, that give us the wisdom to avoid those edges, those danger spots. And we see the tragedies that have happened and we become more cautious and especially as we become parents and we realize we are not invincible and our children are not invincible. And we begin to respect the wisdom that we read in the word of God because we have experienced some of those consequences or we've witnessed some of the consequences. And so, my friend, if you are in your teens, or if you're a child, and you're growing up, and you sort of feel invincible, you feel that you're above the rules, you feel that that uh, this, these bad things couldn't happen to you, I want you to think again, because they can, and they will. The scripture says, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And it's only by God's mercy that we don't reap everything that we've sown. But in general, the direction that we're on we need to stop and reconsider and ask the question would jesus be weeping if he saw the direction that i was in now for some it's an active direction in sense pushing the boundaries pushing the boundaries because it's too straight it's too there's too many constraints there and feel like they have to put god in a closet because his way is getting in their way of having a good time. And so I beg of you to reconsider, to think that the scripture is true, that God has plenty of blessings, plenty of adventure, plenty of things for to occupy you that are far better than the counterfeits that are tempting you right now, or that maybe you've even tasted a little bit of. Last night, Brother Mark had a, a great uh, CFG topic on the road less traveled when he talked about <clears throat> that uh, God has a much better way for us to go down the way he's decreed them. And, and if you're young, <clears throat> that begins by subject being subject to your parents' authority. You may think that they... Uh, uh, aren't with it in the modern times. They may not have the same gadgets that you have. They may not know the ins and outs of all the all the, the ways that you use technology and, and the way you spend your time. And sometimes they're, they're, um, the constraints that they put on are draconian. They're old. They're ancient. They're irrelevant. That you don't need them. I want you to pause. And I want you to consider that... God has put you under their authority and has given them the uh, the task to raise you up, to teach you, to train you, so that as you get older, you will be able to discern better than you can today. It's not because you're not smart. It's not because um, that um, you don't have any experience. We know from 
the um, brain studies in recent science that your brain is still developing. And the last part of your brain to develop, which happens in your early 20s, and of course it's not a, it's not a, 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 a thing that happens immediately, as in you have none of it and then suddenly you have all of it, but the part of the brain to be able to discern the decisions and the consequences doesn't fully form until you are in your 20s. Let me repeat that. The way your brain forms, it does not fully form the part that can fully weigh the consequences of your decisions. To be able to rationalize or to have the critical thinking of saying, if I do step A followed by step B followed by step C, this will be the consequence and therefore I probably shouldn't do that. Yes, you have some of that in your teens and that continues to develop as you get older, but it's not fully formed until you are in your 20s. And so it's not a mistake that God puts you under authority of your parents to help you, to teach you, to train you in those ways. And when you follow, if your parents are godly and they're following the scripture, and if you... Uh, Desire to do the same, you will be under their authority. But it's not just their authority. God has placed other authorities in their lives and in our lives as well that the scripture calls us to obey. And especially, of course, the top authority is the word of God itself, that we are under God's authority and the things that he has placed in our lives. Now, it's not always or necessarily a salvation matter. And while some things in life are as stark or as large as whether a person, where a person is going to spend an eternity, and by far, that is the most important. And if you have not made that decision yet, I pray that the uncertainty that you may be feeling now in this pandemic may jar you awake and recognize that the things which are seen around us can so easily change in such a short time. And that the only certainty is those things that, are, that, that are, have been given to us from an eternal perspective. Our soul, which, the, which God has stated, is made eternally so that even if these, not if, when these bodies decay, that our soul lives on in eternity. And I pray that during this time, that may become more apparent to you. But also, even those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus and have experienced salvation, we also can focus on short-term things. That the scripture in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about... uh, uses sort of a contrasting set of terms, set of materials to describe this. It says wood, hay, and stubble. That is like straw, like dead grass. It's that we can spend our life using those materials to build things, but then fire will come to prove our work. And if it's made out of that substance, the scripture says it will be burned up. Nothing will be left. Yes, we will be saved, but we will have no works. We will have nothing that we'll be able to carry in eternity. The contrast is 
gold, silver, precious stones, these things that can withstand the heat of fire, the heat of the, the fire of uh, purification, because they are made for eternity. Not the actual physical substance, of course, these are just analogies. But the things that will last on into eternity, that is our relationship with God, a relationship one with another, the things that we do as we follow the scripture of caring for one another, will go on into eternity. They will matter in the end. Not the other stuff that's temporal that eventually will pass and decay. There is another picture that Jesus uses to describe his visitation. See, he came in the form of a man, as we, as we discussed in the Gospels. That was <clears throat> the form of visitation that we're all familiar with. But in Revelation, the third chapter, we read in verse 20, which says, Behold, this is talking about him, Jesus, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him or dine with him and he with me. This is another manifestation of the visitation. When Jesus comes to your heart's door and he knocks, he knocks because he wants to have entry. Notice the scripture doesn't say he comes with a battering ram to knock down your heart. Knock down your door to force his way into your heart? Doesn't do that. He comes and he quietly knocks and he waits for you and I to open the door, to invite him in, to come dine with us, to visit with us, to have a relationship with us. And this is what he desires for every single one of us. When we open the door to our hearts and when he comes in and dines with us, it reminded me of the, of the scripture in, in uh, Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah, which is an unused, probably one that we don't often read. But I love the description that contrasts this time of visitation that we read together here in, as he was, as Jesus was entering Jerusalem and as he's weeping, a complete different perspective. Verse 16 in Zephaniah chapter 3 says, In that day, it's talking about a future time, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear, fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. What a contrast. Instead of Jesus weeping over us, over his people, he says he will joy over us with singing. This is what Jesus wants to accomplish with his visitation. May we not miss that visitation. May we learn from the scriptures that we have before us that instead of him weeping in the direction that we're going and the, and this, perhaps the stubbornness or our self-righteousness or our self-sustenance and the thing that we think we have enough wisdom to run our own lives apart from the wisdom in his revealed word, may we sit up and take notice 
and answer the door of our heart as he knocks, as he uh, speaks to us through his word. And as we allow him into our lives, that then as we as he changes us from the inside out, that instead of weeping, he rejoices over us with singing. What a beautiful picture that is. I'd like to conclude the service with a song from the Camp Adult Choir from this past year, 2019, and I'd like to read the second verse in the chorus of this song. It says, Many men have tried to be satisfied by the things this world affords. They have placed their faith in another way and rejected Christ our Lord. But the Father longs to reveal to them what they needed all along. It is there to claim in Jesus' name, at the cross, sin stains is gone. What we needed was a Savior, pure and sinless, dying for the wrong we've done. What we needed was a holy sacrifice, God's only begotten Son. When the world all around was bound for hell, all earthly hope was lost. What we needed was the grace and mercy God provided on a rugged cross. What a message of hope that we don't need to miss the time of our visitation.